Good morning. Uh, as you probably know, if you're new, but or maybe have figured out, we are in a series through the Gospel of John, and we, we have a gift for you. The um, Gospel of John Scripture Journal has uh, the Gospel of John on the left, and then a place for you to take notes on the right. Uh, and I would love to, if you're new, give you one of these. I will be at the connection table right across the hallway after the service is over, so uh, find me, and I'll, uh, I'll be glad to give you one of these. Today we're going to uh, look at some, a story of some of John the Baptist's disciples who seem to envy uh, Jesus' growing influence in the number of disciples and people that he is um, getting to follow him. Uh, we all struggle with envy sometimes. It isn't something, though, in 13 years of um, community groups that I've ever had someone confess in a community group openly. No one's ever said, you know what my biggest problem is? I'm just envious. I just envy this person and that person. We'll drop subtle hints with other people. We'll be like, you know, oh, I'd love to have something like they have, or I'd love to have like, you know, what they're, the job he's got or something. It's real subtle, but we don't like to admit that we are envious. And the truth is that envy starts at a very young age. And we even uh, see this in some of our children's uh, stories. Uh, a friend of mine made the observation that uh, Snow White is fundamentally about envy. And if you know the, the story of Snow White, uh, she was born to two loving parents as a princess, and uh, her mother died, and then her father uh, remarried, uh, but married an, uh, a terribly vain woman. And every day, this woman would get up and look in her magic mirror, and you can say it with me, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the heiress of them all, right? And the mirror would say, uh, how she, she would say, queen. Um, oh, you are, oh, queen, which sounds like something off TikTok right now, honestly. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> then one day she asked the mirror, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And the mirror all of a sudden says, um, queen, you are quite fair, it is true, but Snow White fairer is than you. And that set the queen, obviously, on a uh, horrible trajectory where she ends up hiring a witch to murder her stepdaughter which is a great children's story, right? Like, hey, kids, let's read Snow White. Go to bed now. Don't dream about horrible witches that want to murder you, right? <laughs> but, uh, of course, it's, it's a fairy tale, so the ha there's a happy ending. But we tell this story to our kids, and I've never heard of, like, a child going, I just don't understand why the, the, the um, queen would be jealous of, of Snow White. They, they understand envy at a very young age. They understand the kid that's more athletic than they are. They understand the kid who's taller than they are. They understand the kid who's funnier than they are. They understand the kid that's the most academic in the class, the, the one who has the most stuff, whatever it might be, the most likable person. Like at a very young age, we begin to identify someone else and wish that we had what they had. Envy arrives early in the human heart. And while we might mask it as adults, it still shows up. And this is what I think we're seeing, at least among John the Baptist's disciples in John uh, 3, 22 through 36. It sets itself up perfectly for John to, to like display envy. But instead, he shows us something uh, really beautiful and, and profound. Actually, and I'm going to throw this on the screen, verse 29, the second part into verse 30. He says something profound. He says, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What a, what a profound statement from someone who had begun his ministry 
as the, first, as the last of the Old Testament prophets. They had not had a prophet in 400 years. And he shows up on the scene and he's getting crowds. He's not getting them in the city. He's getting them to come out of the cities and towns to come out to him. And he's baptizing and he's got disciples as he's functioning as a rabbi. He has disciples and, and this crowds that are listening to him. And now all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and his ministry is growing. But John's joy was not found in his exaltation, but in in exalting Christ and pointing to him. His joy was not found in seeking to gain his life, but in losing it for Jesus' sake. John's joy was not in his accomplishments, but how much he could leverage his life for others to know and see Jesus. And this is our, our big idea for today is really we find real joy in life when we humbly live for Jesus. We find real joy in life. I would argue lasting joy, eternal joy, sovereign joy. We'll actually see later in the book of John, Jesus actually in chapters 14, 15, and 16 mentions giving his joy to his people. That you're, he says that your joy may be full and that my joy might be in you. So there's like something really uh, huge happening here, something dynamic that's beyond like human comprehension, a joy that, that John models for us here. And we see that how he does it in, in three ways and how we can uh, do it as well. First, we need to acknowledge the plot. Secondly, we need to accept our role. And then thirdly, affirm the truth. First, we need to acknowledge the plot. So to understand the plot of what John was acknowledging, uh, the bigger story he was a part of, you have to get back to John chapter 1 in verses 19 through 34 is a whole section on John the Baptist. And he's asked over and over again by the religious leaders, who are you? Who are you? Um, you know, some say you're Elijah or whatever. And, and he, is, he constantly is, is taking attention off of himself and pointing to Jesus and saying, I'm not the Messiah that he's to come. And I'm not worthy to even untie his shoes. And I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize you with fire. He, he, he's greater than me in every way. And then in uh, chapter 1, verse 29 and 30, he makes a, a confession The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold. So he's got his disciples, his crowds around him. He goes, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John said, someone is ultimate that's coming into this scene. This story has ultimate reality involved in it. And I I am not the point. In chapter 1, verse 34, he actually professes, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. John's saying there's a bigger story than what I'm doing here. There's a bigger story than me showing up on the scene and baptizing some people and seeing some things happen and getting crowds to follow me. I am not living for that. That's not my point. That's not the plot of the story. There's a bigger plot happening, a bigger story. It's God's story. So it's not surprising that if that was in John's heart, how he would respond to his disciples when they confront him. Verse 25, now a discussion rose among, uh, between some of John's disciples and a few uh, Jew over purification. Now I want to pause on that real quickly because that actually again points to the story, the bigger plot. So what they're talking about, and, and if you remember a few weeks ago, we, did the, the, we looked at the miracle where Jesus turned water into wine. And, that, and what, did, what kind of jars did Jesus use to turn to turn water into wine. What, what kind of jars were they? Anybody remember? The jars for purification. 
And so in doing so, Jesus was saying, you're not going to need these anymore. <laughs> they, in fact, purification, the, all the washing and stuff had to be done over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because it could never fully cleanse you. And in fact, was never meant to be the point anyway. All of the purification laws of the Old Testament were meant ultimately to point to the one purification that Jesus would bring. And so even in this debate, they're saying, the Jews are saying, you know, okay, uh, so you're doing this baptism thing. Is that it? Is that purification? Is that what Jesus is doing here? Do, do we have to, how many times do we have to get baptized? How often do we have to get baptized? You know, what, are you replacing purification? And John, the debate is about that. And John is saying, yes, in fact, Jesus purifies you, but even the water itself is not what cleanses you. It is Jesus who does it, but the water is the symbol of that. Verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John's saying, you're framing the whole story wrong. You're not seeing the big picture. I don't have anything except what God has given me. God is the real author. God is the real uh, author of the story that we are in. And we have lost it. John's disciples, I think, kind of lost it in that moment. And you and I lose it all the time. It made, it made me think, writing this and thinking about this, uh, this point made me think about, gosh, it has to be close to 30 years ago. Some of you that knew Christian music at that point, uh, there was a group called Newsboys, and they wrote a song called Lost the Plot. Um, it's not a great song, it's, uh, you know, but, but for me at that point, it, it fed my soul a bit. But one of the lines, the, the tag or a chorus actually said, first I misplaced the ending, then I lost the plot. And that struck me over and over again, that that is what humanity has been doing since the fall of mankind into sin. We forget where this thing is headed, and we forget what the whole story is. And so we lose ourselves in the story. We are players in God's story, not him in ours. And we often forget the, what the plot is, which means we end up substituting our own storyline. What would you say your storyline of life is, is about? What is the plot of your life story? One of the ways you'd ask this is, what is your life about? What is it for? I don't know. I'd like to reach a point in my career where I'm successful, maybe not stressed out of my mind all the time. I don't need to be rich. I just want to have enough money to be comfortable, maybe be generous to some people. I'd like to own a home, maybe. I'd like to have a good spouse so I can have a companion. I'd like to be able to enjoy my journey along the way through life. I'd like to have some free time so I can travel here and there, maybe have some hobbies, enjoy some good friends. None of those things are evil. But if that's how a person answers what their life is for, what their trajectory of their life is about, they just shared what their plot is. The plot of their existence is to create heaven on earth. I heard someone a long time ago, maybe John Piper, he said, absent of a vision of the, the new kingdom in heaven and earth and the new heavens and new earth, you will substitute your own version here and now. You will do whatever it takes to pursue, to carve out, to create um, like heaven. And that's why, honestly, there, there's, there's an entire industry uh, built around us. It's called the retirement industry, financial industry, right? Whole idea is save all you can, Stop working as early as you can and play the rest of your life, right? 
Create heaven on earth. Buy that house that you want, that dream home, that second home. Have those boats, those cars, those, those uh, uh, wave runners. Have, go on all the ski trips over you know, into Europe. Do all of these things because this is it. This is the plot. This is the story. And there are people who, whose jobs are to keep us believing that. How does what you are after in life differ from those you work with who don't know Jesus? How would you describe what your plot, the plot of your life is about? Is about? We've lost it in this current moment. Our, our culture has no ultimate story, no ultimate reality, no ultimate narrative that, that, that's overarching that we are finding ourselves in. In fact, we've, we've pushed it down to an individual. Modern life doesn't give us space to pause and reflect and acknowledge what all this is really about. I think that that's maybe one of the most sinister things and one of the things that the enemy uses most uh, effectively against Christians especially in a city like Boston where we're ambitious and we have hopes and dreams and pursuits and, uh, and, and upwardly mobile or whatever in our careers. Like the enemy loves to keep us focused on that so we can't stop. Ronald Rollheiser said, I just, this quote just stuck with me. He says, narcissism accounts for our headaches, pragmatism for our headaches and restlessness for our insomnia. And constancy of all three together account for the fact that we are so habitually self-absorbed by heartaches, headaches, and greed for experience that we rarely find the time and space to be in touch with the deeper movements inside and around us. For every kind of reason, good and bad, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It is just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. You wonder why you forget the plot? Because you never have time to stop and think about it. You never take time to reflect. You never take those moments of silence and solitude to let the Spirit speak and reorient you. And you come on Sunday for an hour and a half, and then you go to, maybe go to a community group for an hour and a half or two hours, and that's it. The entire week is, is, that's all you get, the entire week to orient you towards the real story. And then everything else you see and everyone else you talk to and everyone else you're in contact with the rest of the week is living for an entirely different story. So it's no wonder that we find ourselves lulled, distracted, discouraged, and derailed into accepting the plot this world hands us. And John, John could have done that. He was getting the crowds. He was getting the disciples. He could have said, look at this. Man, this is what it's all about, guys. Just look at, you know, yeah, Jesus got his thing. We're going to kind of keep our thing going here for a while, right? Look, we, I've got influence. I've got impact. But he saw his life in the light of God's story. And friends, we, we got to fight this. The air we breathe in Boston is selfish ambition. Selfish, selfish pursuits. My story is the story. And so I'm writing my own story. I'm going to write my own, my own trajectory. My, and the problem is, of course, we can't actually control that. The older you get, the more you actually realize you're, you're not really good at being God. <laughs> you can't control your entire life. You can't control all the people around you. You can't control your job. You can't control the, the personal struggles you might have. And so people get disenchanted. 
It's no wonder we, have, we struggle with so much depression and loneliness. Like we, we don't have a, we, there's no story. There's nothing we're caught up in. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's no direction. Your life doesn't matter. You're a random collision of, of particles in the universe. How to, tell that to a little kid, right? You're a complete accident, a cosmic accident, right? There's no meaning and purpose. What do you think? That, we're, not, we're not telling children that, but by telling them you're the point, that's what we're doing. We're saying there's nothing out there. There's no real truth. There's no real story. There's no objective reality that you should try to figure out and live your life for you. You are it. That's why we need community groups. This is, I, I thought about it this way. I was like, my community group, our community group, remind us of the plot, right? I'll give you a perfect example. Everybody, I think everybody's experienced this in your community groups, probably you, um, but I, we've experienced, you know, multiple times. Somebody comes in, my job's horrible. I've had the worst. My boss is horrible, uh, is putting so much pressure on me. My coworkers are, you know, narcissistic, self-centered, you know, they won't help out at all. And, you know, and you go through this and you just go, and of course, and it's right. The group's like, hey, that's terrible. We want to pray for you. We want to care for you. We're going to sympathize. We all have jobs like that too. Um, Tyler, you're not allowed to say that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but seriously, we've all experienced that or had people share that, right? And, and, and that's good. But if all we do is like, man, that's really rough. Yeah, sorry. But in fact, what a group does, if they actually are studying the word together and praying for each other, we remind each other the plot's bigger than that. Yeah, your job's rough. But don't lose sight of that coworker that God has put around you that keeps asking you questions about your faith. What if that's the reason God has you in that job? So you hate your boss. That's tough. But what if you're making an eternal difference in the life of your coworker? That kind of changes things, doesn't it? That, that, that's a different plot. I'm not saying stay in your job forever, okay? <laughs> that's not the point. But I'm simply saying we, we, don't, we, don't acknowledge, we, we measure everything in our life by the story of is it comfortable? Is it good? Is it serving my purposes? Instead of saying, am I in a place? Well, I always tell people, right, if they have a tough job, it's Sunday, I can tell you God's plan is for you to go to work tomorrow, okay? Generally speaking, unless it's an abusive situation that you're traumatized by, you should get up and go to your job tomorrow. It's, not a, it's a hard job, I get that. But, and you can look for another job. But how much more, how much does it make a difference to realize God has you in that job tomorrow for a purpose? To know it's not wasted time. You might feel like it's wasted time for your career goals, but it's not wasted time in God's plot, in God's economy. He's got you where he wants you on purpose. And our groups help remind us of that on a weekly basis. We find real joy in life when we humbly live for Jesus, and we do that by acknowledging the plot. It's not about us. This isn't our story. It's Jesus's story. Secondly, we accept our role. We have to accept our role. John the Baptist understood his role, and it was a place of deep joy for him. Back in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, he says, there was a, a John, the Gospel of John uh, author tells us, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. Throughout John's Gospel, the other um, 
John the Baptist, actually is referenced as being a witness more than his baptisms. And so some scholars have actually come to, to say, it, maybe he would be better be called John the witness than John the Baptist, because that's what he was doing. His life, his life really wasn't about baptizing. It was about being a witness for Christ. And John reiterates uh, his identity over and over again in chapter 3. When confronted with how Jesus' ministry is growing, he responds humbly. Look at verse 27 <coughs> through 30. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness. So he's saying, you're witnessing of me, that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John humbly asserts his role. He doesn't, and he does it with joy. He's not angry. He's not upset. He's not, I mean, I wish the story was about me. He humbly asserts his role and finds joy in it. Uh, Jenny Allen said, humility is understanding who we are before an incredible unending God. As we worship him and see him for who he is, we think less of ourselves. John had the plot in mind because he understood the plot. He could understand his role, his place. He wasn't the Christ and that was okay. I heard a seminary professor who used to make all of his students stand up each semester and, and say out loud, I am not the Christ, right? And, and I, th I thought it was a helpful practice. So we're gonna try that this morning. I am not the Christ on three. One, two, three. I am not the Christ. All right, isn't that good news? It takes such a weight off your back. You don't have to save anyone. You don't have to, you're not the hero riding off into the sunset. Jesus has already done that but you get to play a part in his story and what he's doing. I love the, the first line of the book, The Purpose Driven Life, is it is not about you. That is literally the opening line of the book of The Purpose Driven Life. Life is not about you. That's not our role. And if you believe it is about you, you will be a miserable person and you will make everyone around you miserable. Parents. Do not raise your children to be the center of your family. And because by doing so, you begin to teach them they are the center of the world. I was asked a few weeks ago um, from a parent with a teenager, and they were like, I, you know, I'm not sure she's, she's not, somebody that's not a member of our church uh, said, you know, she doesn't want to go, and like, I don't want to force her. And I just said, Help her to understand this is what your family does. This is not about individuals. This is about us as a family. This is our culture. You've been raised. This is our family culture. Someday you can create your own family culture, and that's fine. But our family culture is we go to church together. And so, like, teach your child that they belong to something bigger. John joyfully accepts his role. He doesn't feel diminished because he isn't the Christ. And the analogy he uses uh, compares Jesus to the bridegroom, and he is the 
uh, best man, if you will, and the friend of the bridegroom. And in that culture, the, the friend of the bridegroom, the, the, or sorry, the bridegroom would actually be in charge of setting up the festivities. He would, he would, he would make all the preparations, buy all the wine, make sure the uh, master of the ceremonies was uh, in charge, and, and everything was set. The best friend of the bridegroom made sure, this is funny, but he made sure the bride got there so the wedding could actually start. <laughs> and, and so that was his role. And, imagine, and John is saying, when, when, when the bridegroom's best friend, best man, gets the bride to the wedding, his job's done. And in fact, he rejoices to hear the, the bridegroom's voice. He loves the wedding. He loves that this wedding is happening, and it's not about him. I could not help but think about the episode of The Office where Phyllis gets married. Now, I know not everybody here has watched The Office, but you don't have to know The Office. Basically, Michael Scott, the boss at the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company, uh, has Phyllis, who's a worker of his, and she wanted six weeks off from work uh, for, for her honeymoon, so she invited him to help with the wedding in some ways. And Michael has a way of inserting himself into the center of attention in any place. And so Phyllis's father was in a wheelchair and he was walking her down the aisle and she asked Michael to push the wheelchair. So they get about halfway down the aisle and the guy motions to stop. And the, the, the father, Phyllis's older father, he actually stands up and he wants to walk her the rest of the way, you know? <laughs> and Michael is trying to make him sit back down. So he, and he ends up just kind of walking <laughs> the wheelchair down the rest of the aisle right behind them. And then in the reception, it's very funny. Um, and it makes for good comedy. But let's face it, if that happened in real life, that would be anything but funny. You would be like, this person needs help right? You would have them removed from your ceremony because they don't, they're not the center. It's not their story. This isn't their role. But that's exactly what we do when we substitute our own vision and our own understanding and our own plot. We assert a different role. Truth is here today, every Christian in this room, regardless of your vocation, education, income level, gifting, you have one universal purpose in common. It shows up in a lot of different expressions of who God has called you to be, but your calling is to live for the glory of Jesus. Not simply live for Jesus, because I think you can do that real privately, but to live for the name and fame of Jesus. To leverage your life, the time you have in this world, to shine the light on Jesus and show how incredible he is. You are, like John said, to be a witness to Jesus. That's the language, actually, that Jesus used in John 1, 8, after he was resurrected, right? You remember, he looked at his disciples, and it says, you will be my witnesses, right? He, this is our role. We're not John in the sense that we're coming to point to the Messiah who has arrived, who will die. We are, on the other side, having experienced eternal life in his name, we are witnesses of that, that he met me, he changed me. How many of us are living like our careers are the point? Or what we do at home or school or work? Those things are what you do, but that's not your purpose. We're created for the glory of Jesus. And anything other than that is, is, is such a misuse of your life. And, and you will never find joy in it. 
Because whatever purpose you're living for in this world other than Jesus will ultimately let you down. It's like, um, I, remember, uh, I remember being outside in, in uh, Kentucky one time where I pastored and, and was out on a, a farm and I found, I found a, a, a metal rod on the ground and I was like, what is this? This is kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And I realized it was a, it was a lightning rod. It was laying on the ground. Now, you don't have to know a lot about lightning rods, but lightning rods don't belong on the ground. They're kind of useless down there. But you could take a lightning rod and lay it on the ground, or you could take a lightning rod and use it to prop open a door. You could take a lightning rod and you could stir paint with it, a lightning rod. You could do a lot of things with a lightning rod. But that's not what lightning rods are for. Lightning rods are to be on top of a structure so when terrible thunderstorm happenings happens, lightning strikes that and drives the, the power straight down through the ground through a cable versus destroying the structure. You and I are meant to be lightning rods. We don't have any of the power. But when we're walking around living our life for this or that or the other, we don't have any of the glory. But there's something that happens when lightning strikes this plain rod. If you've ever seen it, it's amazing. There's awesome pictures of it. One of the most powerful forces on earth, maybe the most powerful natural force on earth, strikes this tiny metal rod. And for a few moments, it's glorious, right? It, it has no power in of itself, but because the power that has come upon it, it does something extraordinary. And that's you, and that's me. My life by itself, my glory is small. But when I am willing to let my life be a lightning rod for the glory of Christ, he can use it in ways I can't even see to transform others. Back when I was thinking about planting koa, I, you know, moving my family up and all that kind of stuff, making a big decision for a 36-year-old with, you know, three kids in the house and you know, moving my family from a, a rural setting, small town setting to a big city. Um, man, I wanted Jesus to be glorified. I saw Boston and like the, the number of, of uh, churches that had died, closed doors, and, and the, 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 the uh, incredible um, exodus of, of Christians from this area. And I saw a desperate need for the church. And I, went, I said, I want to see Jesus's name made great in Boston. We're going to move, spend 25 or 30 years. And I would love to tell you that that was like an overarching like glor uh, vision of mine. And that can be for your life. I want to be the best whatever. I want to be the best whatever for the glory of Jesus. I want Jesus. I want to be in that sphere so I can point others to Jesus. That's great. But if I'm honest about me, I kind of wanted a little glory along the way too. I kind of wanted the, I figured Jesus would be really glorified by a growing, uh, vibrant, multiplying church in Boston, right? And then I could slip in right behind him, just getting a little glory with Jesus, right? That was my flesh. That, and, and, I, and unfortunately, that's the part of me I have to still crucify. Um, God, thankfully, through, through a, a cardiac arrest in 2009 and then through um, just the grinding nature of doing ministry in Boston has disabused me of some of that. I'm just going to be honest. The idea of glory is like, I kind of just want to finish well right now. <laughs> like so many ministers burning out, churches closing doors. I just want to follow Jesus, shepherd the flock, and see Jesus you know, glorified in, in our midst uh, in this area. Um, but but I think that many of us, if we're honest, that's how we struggle with our own flesh and our 
and the desire to live for Jesus' glory. We've put so much time into our career, so much energy into our education, so much into where we are, where we're shooting to be in our career. And, and it's hard. It's hard to separate because we're like, yeah, I, I want to glorify Jesus for all of that, but I also love a lot of glory along the way. Here's a question for you. Many of you are 30 years, 40 years from retiring, unless you do really well, and then you retire in 10 years and play the rest of your life, like I said, but hopefully not. But, <laughs> but when you retire, do you want, is your hope that those you've worked with had as much or more respect for your faith than your work? Had as much or more respect for who you were in your character and how you live for Jesus as, as the work you did. Because I think many of us right now would just be happy if people thought we did a good job. That's the difference. That's how subtle it is. And it's always, the enemy is always trying to take territory there in your heart. We find real joy in life when we humbly live for Jesus. Maybe you just need to get up each morning this week and say what John the Baptist said. He must increase, but I must decrease. Final picture here, so acknowledging the plot, affirming our, uh, accepting our role, and then finally affirming the truth. And this, John ends this section, it's interesting, so if you, if you stopped and kind of looked at it literarily, John, the, uh, the apostle who wrote the gospel of John, gives us the first few verses. He tells the story in context of what happens, and then there's a section of interaction where John the Baptist is speaking, and that's over, and now uh, we're hearing from John the Apostle, again, the author of the Gospel of John, and of the truth, he's, he's helping us to understand what John just said or framing it out for us. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. This means three things here. Um, this, this idea of Jesus being from above and we're from the earth. Uh, authority, perspective, and empathy. First is the authority. Christ comes from above, meaning he has power. He comes from heaven. He's the author of creation. If you want to know more about that, look back at John chapter 1, verse 1 and following. This picture of, the, of Jesus as the eternal word of God who sits above the universe outside of reality that we understand and has created the reality. He, is, he brings order and purpose and meaning. <clears throat> he also brings rules. He brought rules of, of what is right and good because he knows what is right and good. He is above and not of this world. C.S. Lewis says the reason that we, uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, argues that because all across humanity, there are certain universal moral principles that we find in every culture for some reason, written on people's hearts, he would say. And he said, and he argues that um, an absolute moral law requires an absolute moral lawgiver. The reason that it's on our hearts is because God created us. That's the authority that Jesus comes with from above. Secondly is perspective. Jesus is above. He sees what we can't see. He understands things in a different way. Is this the difference between being on the ground versus being in the air? I don't know if they even use them anymore, but traffic helicopters. 
I think they all have just cameras now everywhere, but uh, they used to be traffic helicopters. And if you were going to, you know, commute in the morning, you would turn on the local radio station because they had their traffic helicopter up. And how were they helpful, right? Because they were above everything. Because they could see the beginning and the end of the road. They could see the beginning of the traffic jam and the end of the traffic jam. They could see the open routes and closed routes. They could, because of their perspective, speak truth to those on the ground who could not see. Now imagine a person in the car who just refused to always listen to the traffic radio. They're like, what does that guy know? He's not here. He's not in this traffic. He doesn't see what I see, right? That's exactly what we are doing when we, like, who's Jesus? He doesn't know what he's talking about. I see truth. I see reality. I see what's right and wrong. Rather than accepting the testimony from above. Verse 32 actually says, no one receives his testimony. Now, that's obviously hyperbole in the the sense of, like, it's not natural. Remember what John the Baptist said, no one receives anything unless it is given to him from above. So what he's saying simply is this, in, in, in what he says in verse 32, is that if you are of earthly perspective, you won't receive Jesus' testimony. You won't receive testimony of who he is, and you won't receive his testimony about right and wrong and meaning and purpose. Only when we see things this way, uh, only when we see Jesus can we see things his way. Jesus, uh, actually, uh, um, Tim Keller says that Jesus challenges New Yorkers, same with Bostonians, in one of a few specific areas, mostly money, sex, power, relationships, and integrity. Money, sex, power, relationships, and integrity. And most likely in this room right now, every one of us struggles with one of those because we have received the testimony of others over the testimony of Jesus about something. But Jesus sees with heavenly eyes from above. So his authority, its perspective, and its empathy. He comes from heaven. He came to earth. John 1, 14 says he has come and tabernacled among us, right? He, he, he lived among us, pitched his tent among us. He stooped down, came to get into our mess. He can empathize with us. He knows what it's like to be exhausted. He knows what it's like to be um, weary. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be hated. He knows what it's like to have, a, uh, uh, have friends who are idiots, right? Like he knows it. He understands. He is tempted in every way like we are and yet is without sin. But he can empathize. He's a high priest that can empathize with us. And those who receive his testimony, John says, sets his seal to this, that God is true. That's such an interesting phrase, but it's the the language of, and and maybe, you know, I don't think we we don't do this anymore because we don't ever send in letters, let alone do it this way. But Back in the days when you would send an official letter of yours, right, uh, you would use wax to seal it and then your, like a signet of some kind to, this is my authority. This, this is truth. I'm sending this out here. This is, I'm not taking it back. This is my declaration, right? And, and, and John is saying, if you say, if you receive Jesus' testimony, you are saying, you are setting your seal that God is true. Kind of like the, how, well, how, how iMessages used to be. When it got sent, it was done, right? It was like there was no, there were times you were like, oh man, did I say that? Oh, that's weird. I should take that back. Now you can, thankfully, right? Or edit. But, but for a while there, it was just gone. It was out there. And whatever you said is what you said. And that's what he's saying. You, you have set your seal to this, that God is true. 
But don't miss John's final words here at the end of this chapter, verse 36, and I'm going to close. It matters if you affirm this. This is not a matter of like, well, you know, if I miss my life purpose, living, knowing and following and living for Jesus, then, you know, it's, it's kind of sad, but it'll be okay. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It sounds hard, but there are eternal implications. Jesus didn't come to improve our lives. He came to give us life. Because as John 3.16 says, the alternative is to perish. So Jesus has come to give life. Leslie Newbegin, a missiologist, said this, the universality of God's love brings with it the necessary implication of judgment. For if we turn our backs upon universal love, where shall we go but into death? If we turn our backs upon light, where shall we go but into darkness? This is why we point others to Jesus. Because there are many people in this city right now who do not know the gospel, who do not know of Jesus' love, who do not know that God loves them. And they need to hear that. They need to see the light. City on a Hill is not a, just a fun name, right? I mean, it's super cool. But if you're a Christian, you know that comes from Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city upon a hill cannot be hidden. We have a purpose to shine the light of Jesus to others. This has felt particularly weighty to me recently. I'm just dealing with so many broken situations outside the church mostly, but like just other pastors and churches struggling. But just, I, I had a conversation two weeks ago with a 30-year-old who just found out they have stage four cancer. Married. Has advanced degrees like many of you. Had a career path, trajectory, everything was looking great right up until stage four cancer. And I'm talking to them on the phone and and he and his wife, and, and they said, he said something really powerful to me. They said, you know, we, for a long time, we've kind of hidden ourselves in our careers. Like, we, we haven't really, like, tried to influence other people. We haven't tried to share the gospel with anybody. Uh, you, we've just, you know, kind of been quiet about our faith. And, and he said, but now, I, I see, like, I've been holding back what, every, uh, what all those around me need. And so now when they call me and they want to check in on me, I'm point, trying to point them to Jesus. And when they, when they come over and visit me, I'm trying to help them to, I'm try, basically helping to move the ball a little bit in their life towards Jesus. And I would argue this, maybe because everything else has been stripped away, he has actually come to see what life is actually about for the Christian. <clears throat> that he has sent you into your career and you should do a good job at that career. He's gifted you at that. But he didn't send you in there to just do a good job. Honestly, a non-Christian can go do a good job at your career. Am I lying? I, know, I think we all know non-Christians who do really good work in the city. But if he's put you in that career, he's put you in that career as a follower of Jesus. To be salt and light to those around you. To leverage your life, your energy, your time, your talents for him. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that's joy. Let's pray.
God, I thank you for John the Baptist. I, I look forward to meeting him in the kingdom. He, he was a wild one, living out in, the, out in the sticks and eating crazy food and dressing crazy and preaching a crazy message to, to people, and yet you were drawing people to yourself through him. Lord, you helped to open some people's eyes to be, so they could see Jesus. Thank you for, for using him, for his life pointing to Jesus so clearly. I pray, God, we would take our calling as serious as he did, that we would understand we are no less called to make much of Jesus. We are no less called to point others to him. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to do that. Give us a boldness where we need it. Give us patience where we need it. Give us a praying heart where we need it. And God, use us. Use our finite little lives, our weak attempts, our frailties to do immeasurably more than we could think. And God, as we prepare to take communion, we thank you for the bread and the cup. Thank you for the symbol of Jesus' body and blood broken and poured out for us. As we take it, we remember what you've done, Jesus, on our behalf that we might know you, live for you. May you ever increase in our lives. In your great name we pray, amen. So if you are a Christian, anytime over this next song, uh, we invite you to step out and, and take communion. There'll be stations around the corners here. You can either take it and step to the side or go back to your seat and take communion. Um, if you're not sure where you are with Christ today, we, we invite you to, to take a step of faith with Christ, to, 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 to take him and then afterwards at uh, a future date to take communion. Communion is for those who, who have crossed that line, who have set their seal that God is true and who have said, my life is leveraged for him. And as you take the meal, I want you to think about one day in the kingdom where you will take the meal with him and every Christian who's ever lived, if you're a Christian. And and I want you to think about how between now and then what God wants to use your life to do. Will there be others there because of you? Let's go ahead and stand and sing together.